This is an ABC podcast. The Rift is a story about a community of rangers who live on a remote island where they protect an ancient herd of mystical deer. Um, and the deer face several threats from a multitude of fronts. Number one, they have a problem with poachers sneaking onto the island um, and that is because the deer's antlers um, contain a very rare healing compound known as Actian's Bane um, and if you can get your hands on it and you can sell it on the black market for hundreds of thousands of dollars because the compound is so potent it can almost heal pretty much anything that ails you um, to a point. Um, and so it's very highly prized and highly valued. So poachers, bad, and the rangers are always trying to deal with that. Um, the other threat to the deer is um, Nutris Pharmaceuticals, big evil corporation. Um, and once every four years, they, uh, they have a treaty that allows them to send fortune hunters to the island to perform a cult because it is a uh, delicate ecosystem and when you've got deer um, <laughs> roving and roaming and browsing and procreating, um, the ecosystem can get pretty walloped. Uh, but the pharmaceuticals company also like to get their hand on that product and the, the rangers hate uh, Nutris Pharmaceuticals but the treaty allows um allows Nutris to come to the island and so they put up with that. But really the big threat um, to the herd is that there happens to be just a little hole in the space-time continuum up on the mountain and every full moon the rift um, grows unstable and hellhounds <laughs> can sneak through um, and cause havoc and they're trying to kill and destroy um, these deer and anybody connected to them. Um, and it's a, it's a story about two young people who are a part of that community. Um, the central characters are Cal and Meg. Uh, Meg happens to be the daughter of the head ranger um, and Cal is um, just a young bloke who happens to get caught up as an apprentice ranger. Um, and the story begins with Meg returning to the island for the first time in nine years. She's been living on the mainland um, after a dreadful accident from when she was a kid. Her and Cal got caught up in some dangerous times up on the mountain with hellhounds and whatnot. Um, and Meg was dragged to the mainland with her mum, who had had a guts fall. She was like, why are we doing this? This is insane. I'm taking my daughter and I'm out of here. And Meg is returning for the first time. So that's where the story begins, Meg returning. And it also happens to coincide with two other major events. So Meg's returning to deal with her deadbeat dad at the same time as Nutris Pharmaceuticals uh, are there to perform their cull at the same time that it also happens to be a full moon. Um, and so she and Cal basically have to work together to kind of not die and <laughs> to try and save the herd and to save their community. So, Rachel, what kind of world do Cal and Meg live in? I mean, what has happened? Um, well, on the island, so, you know, they have threats. There's these natural threats and supernatural threats on the island. Um, but it's something that's very much hidden from the everyday community, like 
the the island also has like a fishing community, like they have a fishing port. Um, and so regular folk or civilians are not aware of of the supernatural dangers on the island. They, they've been told or convinced that there's a slight feral dog problem. And so they know that you just don't go up on the mountain at certain times and you just kind of avoid that. And that's that's the way they kind of get by with these blinkers to keep people safe and to keep the community safe. And so Meg and Cal, they are childhood friends. And um, Cal originally, he was a fisherman's son and um, had no expectation whatsoever to um, find himself becoming a ranger. Whereas Meg um, was born into it and her dad was the head ranger. And so she had every expectation that that would be her life. And that's really the only thing she's ever desired. Like it's always been in her that she could not wait. She just longed to become a ranger like her dad and um, like um, the other ranger kids. And so that was her dream. Um, and then it was this terrible accident one night out on the mountain, her and Cal in the wrong place at the wrong time um, when there was an attack from these rift hounds slipping through the rift. Um, and it was so life-threatening and terrifying for their family. That's what caused um, her mom to just go, this is it. This is crazy. We're not doing this anymore. I'm taking my kid and I'm going. And so Meg was devastated. She never, ever would have wanted to leave. And through that accident, Cal is exposed um, and he's bitten by one of these dogs. And that actually gives him um, some abilities um, that are beyond the norm that are highly prized by the ranger community. And so they basically adopt um, Cal and they they bring him into the community, even though it goes against all of their rules and regulations. So basically, no one really is supposed to ever become a ranger unless they're born into it, unless they have the right blood, basically. And that um, causes some issues, doesn't it, in terms of Cal oh, not really yes. knowing where he fits in this world, yes. but also constantly being reminded that he doesn't fit in this world. Yes, yeah. So they, the community want him because they need his gifts and abilities, but they like to constantly remind him that he is an outsider and that he should be very grateful <laughs> to even be allowed to be counted amongst their ranks. Um, and so it's a pretty bittersweet situation for him. And of course, Meg who's been away for nine years when she returns it's very bitter pill for her to swallow to find that Cal essentially has everything that she ever wanted that Cal has lived the life that she wanted to live and she missed out on um, and and so there's just this massive resentment and anger <laughs> for her of like I just can't believe it, you know, like that he got everything that she wanted and um, and was denied. And so they have a lot of stuff to get over before <laughs> they can really be allies, you know, like I did not make it easy for them at all. <laughs> and um, one of the other difficulties they face, and because this is, I guess, to be fair, it is a kind of, um, you know, enemies to lovers kind of, uh, you know, trope and that they start off very opposed. One of the real difficulties of the story uh, and for Cal is that he has a condition 
which is directly related to the gifts in his life that makes physical touch unbearable to him um, and so unbearable. So like even ca any kind of casual touch of like, you know, brushing shoulders with someone or brushing fingertips with another person is immensely uncomfortable for him. Um, uh, you really did throw a lot at him, didn't you? So, you know, <laughs> how do you how do you have two people kind of fall for each other or experience, you know, kind of romantic feelings? Like, what do you do if you can't actually touch one another? <laughs> so, yeah, that was a really fun problem to try and solve. <laughs> I'm so mean, really, for making that happen, but yeah, yeah, and you, that's kind of where that came from. Got me thinking about Rogue in X Men now because that's a similar situation. Mm. She can't touch anyone, yeah. Um, but if you believe the movies, she fixes that. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, mm, what can we do to to help this de desperate young couple? There has to be a loophole. I do my best. I do my best, but it, it is not. It's not an easy easy road for him. But it was a really fun like I particularly enjoyed writing Kel's character because I was thinking you know up till he's uh, eight or nine years old his life is completely normal touch is normal you know all of his interactions are normal then after this attack after this bite that's when the change comes and these other gifts come into his life but also this terrible burden that he carries and then i'm like man what is nine years of life without physical touch like you know like what does that make you into and so and that I must mean, have presented challenges in if you are writing this sort of you know enemy to lovers trope as you put it that mm. touch is one of those things that you can bring in but if it's not a part of that then how do you form whatever it is between Cal and Meg with, mm. without that. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of intense eye contact. <laughs> 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 a lot of getting very very close and then not being able to touch. There's yeah, you know, there's all kinds of things that go on. Uh, and obviously a lot that's engaged through words and through language and um um and and yeah. Silence and gazing and <laughs> having intense feelings. <laughs> well, Rachel, speaking of intense feelings and ways to write when something might not have the, I don't know, the active voice to do that, what was it like mm. to write Reva the Raven, who is Cal Scout? <laughs> I love Reva so much. Like, I, that's the, probably the first time that I've really written an animal in a story other than in the spark series. Um, Evie has a cat, <laughs> yeah. but she doesn't get a lot of action. The cat doesn't get a lot of action. Uh, but whereas Reva is a person, like she's really a character in, in her own right in the story. And she was a joy. It was a joy. I'm like, from now on, everybody gets an animal. Like, <laughs> Like, I'm just going to write animals and everything now. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a real delight to 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 write her character, and and I guess um, I love the sense of connectedness between her and Cal. And I guess for Cal, she is um, she is his family. She is his community because she he can he can touch her 
and um, it, it doesn't have the same kind of effect on him as as human touch does. And so just even her nearness, like, you know, she sits on his shoulder or leans against him, this connectedness and um, and a sense of, of being known and being understood. And, and so they share a kind of telepathic bond. And so this is something, this is a, this is a gift that's rare amongst rangers like oh not not every ranger has this um and and so cal has kind of you know um he scored in a way he found a sneaky door in, mm. in in that regards um and so the point or the the role of the bonded scout um, in the ranger community is to give the ranger um extra scope um for being able to patrol uh, you know, when they're on the job. And so um, Reva flies ahead um, and is able to get that bird's eye view, literally, <laughs> of the landscape, <laughs> um, can see danger in advance. Um, and through their bond, through their link, she's able to send, um, I guess, telepathic images, not language, not words in, in the sense that we would, but images. She's able to project images to him of what she can see um, to warn him and say danger there are rift hounds on the southern slope <laughs> yeah, whatever i don't know um you know stuff <laughs> with like her that. eyes <laughs> yeah with her eyeballs and and sending it sending it through whatever their mysterious link is to say mate watch out there's trouble ahead be safe all of that kind of thing Rachel, what was the inspiration for Blackwater Island? I mean, is there a Blackwater Island? Um, no, there's not. It's um, totally fictional. Um, I Well, let me tell you. So <laughs> there's a couple of inspirations for this story. One of them is um, The Scorpio Races by Maggie Staffader, um, which happens to be my number one favourite YA novel of all time. I just love that book. Um, so much, and I've read it many, many times. Um, but one of the things that I love about um, Maggie Staffader's writing, and one of the things I particularly love about um, the Scorpio races, is is the setting, um, is the and physical environment, and um, the tremendous sense of atmosphere in the story. And I read that book and felt, you know, I just feel almost drunk on the atmosphere, like the atmosphere is just like, <laughs> I love that. And that always resonates with me. It's what I'm drawn to as a reader and it's what I long to write as well. Like I always want to create, um, yeah, that sense of atmosphere that's completely immersive. And so when I read Scorpio Races, I was like, I have to write a book that's set on an island. <laughs> just ah you know my calling um, from the beyond <laughs> the oracle hath said i must write a story that's set on an island and that also appealed to me from another point of view of of things that i love to write is that i really love to write a contained physical environment to, to contain the narrative like i love a, a really contained narrative and by placing it in geographical boundaries it places the narrative in, in geographical boundaries and kind of traps you into that space and um and uh, yeah all of my stories tend to do this in some way um like even the spark series 
um, as the books go on, the physical environment becomes narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller um, until I think the third book is totally told inside um, the Affinity Project compound, which is underground. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, maybe I'm going to write a story that's set in a box one day. Um, but yeah, with um, The Rift, it's all set on on this island. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to be. You're stuck there. And that's where that's where all the action is going to take place. So yeah, they were uh, the, a couple of the major um, inspirations. But the the inspiration behind the whole story is is quite obscure, if you would like to know about that. Well, I was um, going to go there, so let's. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the story is loosely inspired by a Greek myth, um, and that's the story of Actaeon. Um, and I... And it kind of came about because one of my, I guess, bucket list, wish list, one day I would like to write um, list was um, the idea of writing a shapeshifter story. And I was really interested in the idea of a narrative where a, a man would turn into a stag. And I was thinking, oh, for sure, there's guaranteed to be pre-existing, you know, stories where that happens. So I get on good old Google and um, look up, um, you know, a keyword, man turns into stag. <laughs> 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 and sure enough, there were uh, quite a few different myths um, throughout, um, you know, different cultures and stories. And there were some Norse legends and some Celtic legends. And, and then, of course, I stumbled across the Greek myth. So... I was super into it the moment that I read it. I had never heard it. Actian was a hunter. He one night goes out into the woods with his hunting dogs to to I don't know kill a deer or a or a, or a boar or whatever they do. Um, and while he's out there, um, he stumbles across the goddess Artemis bathing naked in the woods. Um, and she is not best pleased by him having a jolly good perv. Um, and so she, <laughs> as you wouldn't, she, as, as you wouldn't. And so she curses him. Um, and the curse is that he turns into a stag and is ripped apart by his own hunting dogs. Um, and when I read that, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I just love the story so much. And I knew that I wanted to do something with it. Uh, but I knew that I really didn't want to try and write like a straight adaptation or anything like that. But I was really, really interested in asking that sort of what if question. And my what if question was, what if Actian didn't die? What if that curse stayed in his bloodline and then just traveled down from generation to generation to generation? What would it look like if that curse was still active now? And that was where really where Blackwater Island came from. Because what I loved was the idea of this curse always calling those dogs through time and space. That it would always be drawing those dogs um, to seek to kill his bloodline. So not that I ever overtly say this in the book, but in my mind, <laughs> my secret knowledge that you now have <laughs> um, is that all the deer on the island are actually descendant from Actian. Um, and they just <laughs> happen to be the unfortunate souls that are constantly drawing on this curse because it's in their bloodline. And that's what brings these dogs through 
through the rift. And in my little, um, I guess, creative exercise to get myself ready for um, for writing this, I wrote the myth myself, wrote the story of the myth with my ending, which was having Actaeon survive. And On, you know, you, you mentioned there um, Nutrius Pharmaceuticals and mm. sort of what is happening as Meg is kind of making her way back to the island and what's about to go down, which I gather is kind of a version of the purge, but with deer and hunters. Um, it, I mean, what are you trying to explore through the way that Nutrius Pharmaceuticals have set themselves up and how the fortune hunters work in this world that you've created? Um, I guess one of the things I like to do is kind of present problems and never solve them. (laughs) 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 um, I do this a little bit with um, in the Spark series as well, as I like to deal with like a broken world in which, you know, bad things are happening and that ultimately that the heroes can't actually fix that um, and that the bad things will actually continue to happen. (laughs) You know, I like to write stories filled with hope. Uh, (laughs) Clearly. So, and so Nutris is, they're just bad dudes um, doing what bad dudes do. um, And, and they will, in my mind, probably continue to, to be doing bad things. But it's like my characters are just trying to deal with their part in the story, their part in the, in the problem and there may not necessarily be a save for the situation. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, quite a grim thing to say. <laughs> Obviously I don't approve of what they're doing. Um, I think I, I don't know enough about even corporations to really <laughs> to make a call about whether or not it's an accurate representation <laughs> of corporate greed. But um, I think we all have a few ideas about what that looks like. So, yeah, yeah, they're bad dudes doing bad things. Rachel, what was the best part of writing The Rift? That is a very good question. Um, I think hmm, I love, uh, and whatever I'm writing, I find great joy in super awkward exchanges. So (laughs) that's what's my great joy is to place my characters into very painfully awkward conversations um, where they're being forced to communicate in a way that's very uncomfortable for them. (laughs) (laughs) So I love to do that. I always love that. And I I always sort of inevitably lean that way in the interactions between the characters. I love, I mean, my favourite go-tos for anything is a good kissing scene or a fight sequence. <laughs> it's like, if ever, there's, if ever there's a plot knot, I'm like, well, let's just have someone throw a punch or, <laughs> I don't know, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, I don't know. There's just so many things I love about the Rift. Um, yeah. It's a mysterious creature, the Rift. It's very hard to to kind of, you know, really justify what it is. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what even do you call it as a genre? I'm not even sure. I'm not even really sure what it comes under. I guess urban fantasy, except that it's on a remote island. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. But I love yeah. that you have rift hounds. I mean, that's just great. <laughs> yeah. I love me some rift hounds, that's for sure. I know. And I, I guess I really enjoy the challenge of, of presenting something that's completely outlandish. 
and trying to make you believe it. <laughs> trying to make you believe that that could possibly be real. And, I mean, the rift came out late last year, but I'm always asking the question, what else are you up to? What have you been working on? <laughs> what have I been working on? Okay, well, let me tell you. Well, what can um, you say? I think should be the question more to the point. <laughs> I am trying to write, believe it or not, I guess what can really only be described as a horror story, um, which is not something that I ever imagined I would ever say. <laughs> because, number one, I am a massive wuss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I am super scared of everything. So <laughs> I'm just like, why would I attempt to write this? But anyway, um, that's just the way it's turned out. Um, what can I say about it? Okay, so I'm about halfway. I'm playing with, again, a fictional location. I don't know really what I want to show. Um, I'm dealing with a, I guess, what can really only be described as a virus spreading through a community um, that makes people very dangerous. <laughs> like that. That's a nice um, way of putting it without telling yeah, me anything. I like it. Without really telling you anything. It's yeah, don't spoil it. <laughs> the primary relationship in the story is a brother and sister who are, so they share the narrative. The narrative is shared between the brother and sister, um, older sister, younger brother, um, and them navigating a really dangerous situation, trying to survive. Um, for a big part of the story, they're separated and trying to reach each other. Um, and but we'll come together and and try to survive. This is Rihanna Patrick on ABC Radio.